Have you ever seen those little wristbands that people wear with the letters WWJD written on them? Um, you may have worn them yourself. And the WWJD stands for What Would Jesus Do? And the idea is that you constantly think about what Jesus would do in any given situation. Uh, and that's a way of uh, instructing your own behavior. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. Uh, but if it's taken too far, it can get you into trouble. So uh, you're in Brisbane. You've missed the city cat. It's just pulling away. Your friends are on there. You're supposed to be with them. You look at your wristband. What would Jesus do? You think, okay, let's go for it. Next minute, there's a splash. And you're floundering around in the Brisbane River. You can't walk on water. Or you're walking down the road. There's a funeral procession coming towards you. You think, what would Jesus do? You, you walk up to the coffin. You knock on the lid. And you say, hey, you in there. I say to you, get up. Again, that's going to be pretty awkward. You'll probably be arrested. Or you've had your tax appointment. You owe a bit of tax, but you're skint. So, okay, what would Jesus do? You get your fishing rod, you go down to the lake, you pull out a fish, you look in its mouth, there's no money in there, and you still owe the tax man $500. Of course, this is all very tongue-in-cheek, but the point is, what would Jesus do has its limitations. Now, after reading today's passage, I thought of one which I think is, is, is better than that. WWPG, what would please God? And I don't think you can go too far wrong with that. Um, so today's passage marks the beginning of a change in focus. The first part of Paul's letter was all about his ministry to the Thessalonians. He gives thanks for their faith. He uh, um, defends his ministry to them, and he tells them how much he was longing to see them. Uh, by the way, Paul... Uh, discusses in his letters, or, or the things that Paul discusses in his letters, are usually a direct response to the situation on the ground. And this is certainly the case here. So uh, Timothy has gone to see Paul, and he said, I've got really good news for you. Uh, the church in Thessalonica is going strong. Uh, the people there, they, they genuinely want to please you. Um, but there are some there who are saying slanderous things about you. Here's what they've been saying. Um, the church is also struggling with X, Y, and Z, and they've got these questions. Of course, we're not privy to the conversation between Timothy and Paul, but we can infer the substance of it based on what Paul addresses in his letter. So Paul began his letter with a defense of his ministry, and now he starts to talk about the Thessalonians' way of life. And he begins by saying... As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. In other words, we told you what it takes to please God. You're doing it, and now we ask you to do it even more. Have you ever had a parent, a teacher, or a boss who you could never please? No matter what you did, they always wanted more. It's soul-destroying, demoralizing, and demotivating. You'll be pleased to know that that's not what Paul was like, and it's certainly not what God is like. So what's this more and more all about? It's like, well, we're doing the stuff. What more do you want? 
Well, in verse 3, it says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. To be sanctified or sanctification literally means to be made holy. It is the process by which we become more like Jesus. God loves us, and he wants us to become all that he has created us to be. Uh, That is a process that will not be completed in this life. It will only be uh, completed in the life to come. But we move towards that point uh, in our Christian journey. So it's not that you can't please God. You have pleased God when you accepted Christ. You are pleasing God by living a life of faith. And if you continue to please God more and more, you'll be transformed into his likeness, little by little, over the course of your whole life. If, as a believer, you doubt that God is pleased with you, just consider the parable of the lost sheep that we read a few moments ago. Jesus compares our returning to him as a lost sheep that has been found by its master. And he explains how when that sheep is found, the per, the person finding it is so overjoyed that he throws this massive party, this huge celebration. And then he says, I tell you that in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Of course, we know that everyone needs to repent. And that describes the Thessalonians perfectly. They were idolatrous pagans who were engaged in all kinds of evil practices, and now they are serving the living and true God. They have repented. And it describes us too. We turn from our sin, and we put our faith in Jesus. So when the Thessalonians turned to Christ, there was rejoicing in heaven. When each one of us returned to Christ, there was rejoicing in heaven. As it says in Psalm 149, verse 4, the Lord takes delight in his people. We please God, and if we want to be more like him, we need to go on pleasing him more and more. Now Paul gets very specific about how we can please God, and uh, central to this passage is a comparison between Christian love and pagan lust. He talks about other things too, but this is kind of right at the center. And there are some who might read this and think, oh, these Christians, they're always going on about sex. Um, why do they have to make such a big deal of it? Well, just for the record, I think this is only the second time that I've preached in detail on this um, in the last five years since coming to this church. And um, let's also remember that Paul is addressing specific situations that are relevant for the church in Thessalonica. And this particular issue of sexual ethics was relevant to all the churches scattered across the Roman world because uh, Greco-Roman culture had very few boundaries when it came to sex. For example, the idea that anyone would be faithful to one person. In fact, um, let's be more specific because this was a patriarchal society. The idea that any man would be faithful to his wife was considered ludicrous in that culture. Um, On the whole, men married so that they would have someone to manage their house and with whom they could produce an heir. It was quite normal and acceptable to have a mistress for uh, intellectual stimulation and sexual gratification. What's more, 
All wealthy households had slaves. In fact, you didn't even have to be that wealthy to own a slave. And many of those slaves were used and abused by their owners. Uh, Some were concubines. A concubine was a woman who lived with a man but held a much lower status than the wife uh, and didn't have any real say in that. And then there was prostitution. It was rife. Uh, Some pagan religions had male and female temple prostitution as part of their cultic worship. Uh, Some of them even involved uh, street prostitution. So the adherents of these cults would go out into streets and prostitute themselves as a way of worshipping their gods. And this is the culture that the Thessalonians had turned away from. This is the culture that they'd rejected. So Paul was speaking into a specific situation, but I think he's also speaking into our situation. In our culture, the boundaries for sexuality and interpersonal relationships have been getting pushed further and further out ever since the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Increasingly, it's a case of anything goes. Uh, The next big debate will almost certainly be, and this debate is already going on in other parts of the world, the next big debate will be around polygamy, that is having more than one husband or wife, and polyamory. So instead of having couples, you have groups of people who are all romantically involved. Uh, Although romance isn't a word I'd want to associate um, with that kind of arrangement. But if all the parties are consenting adults, what reason can our culture give for prohibiting, let's say, polygamy, which is currently uh, not allowed? Because the same arguments that have been used to sanction and normalize other lifestyles, promiscuity, for example, can certainly be used to justify polygamy and polyamory. But already there are very few sexual boundaries within our culture. And of course, prostitution and sex slavery haven't gone anywhere. Slavery affects more than 40 million people worldwide. Uh, There are more slaves in the world today than at any other time in history. Three times more than at the height of the transatlantic slave trade. Many of those slaves are sexually exploited. And this scourge impacts every country in the world. On top of all that, our culture is beset with the very modern problem of internet pornography. It's prolific, it's extremely addictive, and according to research, it's viewed by an alarmingly high percentage of Australians, not just Australians, but throughout the world. Uh, Many or most of whom don't see this as a problem, but what it's doing is warping our society's view of sex and intimacy. So Paul was writing to Christians living uh, in a culture with very few boundaries around sexual behavior. But I don't think it's hard to see the correlation with 21st century Australia. So what alternative did Christianity offer? Well, Paul sums it up in verses 3 to 4. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Remember, that's an ongoing process. It doesn't happen overnight. It is God's will that you should be sanctified that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. 
That's the NIV translation, the translation we use. The NRSV replaces the words sexual immorality with fornication. Fornication is sexual intercourse between two people who are not married to each other. So Christianity has a very high view of sex. It is considered so special and sacred that it's given a context where it can be appropriately honored. And that context is marriage. The normative, and I would argue the biblical view of sex, is that it is a gift from God to be enjoyed within the context of a lifelong monogamous relationship, a marriage between a man and a woman. Now, by and large, our culture considers that claim to be outrageous and ludicrous. And that's okay because we're not trying to force people into adopting our worldview and we'll continue to love those who see things differently, which is probably the majority now in our culture. But let's remember that in first century Thessalonica, the idea that a man would be faithful to his wife was considered outrageous and ludicrous. And if you had lived in first century Thessalonica and you weren't a Christian, you would almost certainly have that same view. In most times and places, Christianity has been extremely counter-cultural. It's one of the reasons that, that, that Christians have been so persecuted. But that's exactly what we'd expect. We'd expect Christianity to be counter-cultural in a fallen and broken world that is in rebellion against God. And the question for us is, well, where does our moral compass come from? Do we take our moral compass from the culture or do we take our moral compass from God's word, the Bible? Because if we take it from the culture, we have to be prepared to change what we believe, what we think is right and wrong, what we think is acceptable. We have to be prepared to change it, you know, over the course of our lives even. The changes happen very quickly. There's no consistency in that. Surely there must be uh, ultimate truth given to us from God. I said earlier that Paul gives us a comparison between Christian love and pagan lust. Love is about the giving of oneself for the benefit of others. Lust is about taking from others for the benefit of oneself. Now, a sexual relationship within marriage is not legalized lust. It's something quite different. It is simply one aspect, one expression of a much wider and deeper love that exists between the two people. Paul goes on to talk about love in the broader sense. And this is really important because not everyone gets married. Uh, Jesus was never married, and yet he had the most uh, loving and fulfilling human relationships that it's possible to have. Our culture is so obsessed with sex that it struggles to imagine a person loving and being loved without it. It's almost like we're brainwashed into thinking that to have a fulfilling life, you must have a sexual relationship or multiple sexual relationships. And that simply isn't true. So Paul commends the Thessalonians for the love they have for one another. And he urges them to go on loving one another more and more. Why? Well, because he wants them to experience the strongest 
and the most complete love there is, and that is the love of God. And he wants them to experience that within their community. And he wants everyone, regardless of their, their status and their situation, he wants everyone in the community to experience that love, to experience those deep, loving relationships. We are to... So... <clears throat> So in the ancient world, the, there was this uh, massive contrast between the pagans who satisfied their sexual desires uh, with all kinds of unhealthy and unwholesome practices, and the Christians who committed to one another in marriage, yes, but also in platonic, non-sexual, life-giving relationships within their community. We are to please God and go on pleasing God more and more in order that we might grow in holiness. And one aspect of holiness is sexual purity. It's not the only aspect, but it's an important one uh, because sexual desire is a powerful force that exists within most of us. I won't say all of us because there are some people who don't have uh, sexual desire, but that's quite rare. When we stay within the boundaries that God has given us, sexual intimacy is a beautiful and wonderful gift when we stray outside of those boundaries, it can be incredibly destructive. So in this area of our lives, as with every other area, it's worth asking, WWPG, what would please God? So remembering that Jesus said, if we look at another person lustfully, it's like committing adultery with that person in our heart. So next time you see an attractive person and your imagination is working overtime, think, what would please God? Well, to mentally change the subject, to think about something else, that would please God. If pornography is a problem for you, and next time you feel tempted and your mobile phone or your device seems to have this almost uh, irresistible magnetic pull, you can ask yourself, well, what would please God? Locking your phone in a drawer and praying for strength to overcome that temptation, that would please God. If you're married and you find yourself getting too close to someone in the wrong kind of way, or you're single and you find yourself getting too close to someone who is married, you can ask yourself, what would please God? Putting in a bit of extra distance between you and that person and focusing your attentions on your spouse if, you, if you're married. That would please God. And there's a reason for these boundaries. The reason is simply that God loves us. He loves us. He, doesn't, he wants to protect us. He doesn't want us to get hurt. And that's why he gives us the boundaries. If we desire to please God more and more, holiness will follow. Now, it all sounds very pious to talk about holiness, but really what we're talking about is becoming more like Jesus. You may be thinking, oh, this all sounds too hard. It's not easy to change. And that's true. But in verse 8, Paul reminds us that God who gave us these boundaries also gives us the Holy Spirit to help us to work within them. Verse 8, therefore, whoever rejects this, this call to holiness, rejects not human authority, but God who also gives his Holy Spirit to you. If you put your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will help you. But we have to work with the Holy Spirit. It's a partnership. 
God gives us the Holy Spirit and we can choose to follow or reject his guidance. But one thing's for sure, if we work with, with the Holy Spirit, we'll be far stronger to resist temptation than we would ever be on our own. So, WWPG, what would please God? It's not a formula. Don't expect you to rush out and get little wristbands made up, but it is an essential question to ask ourselves in relation to this area of our lives, that is sexual purity, and in relation actually to every area of our lives. And the wonderful truth is the more we ask ourselves that question, the more we desire to live a life that is pleasing to God, the more fulfilling, wholesome, meaningful, and honorable our lives will become. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, recognize that the, the teaching of Christianity, your word, is extremely countercultural and becoming even more so, particularly with this uh, subject of, of sexual ethics. But we recognize that you do lo- do love us, that you want to protect us, uh, that you want us to live a life that will be fulfilling and honorable and meaningful. And we pray that uh, more and more we'll be able to to live that life, not just not just in this particular area, but in every area of our lives. May we continue to ask, what would please God? What behavior would please God right now? What would please God in terms of how I'm thinking? What would please God in terms of my priorities? Help us to ask those questions, Lord, and to live for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.